this is Diana. Matthew's sitting over across the table from me. Mikey's in my lap and Buddy is asleep on the couch. We're here back after a very long hiatus with the Dyson Dachshunds podcast. Last year we recorded nine episodes, but they were pretty much all loaded into the front half of the year. This year, one of our New Year's resolutions is to record at least 12 episodes and to try to record one a month so that we can cover the year evenly rather than nine up front and then going oddly silent from September on. It's been a busy year, but we're back and we've got games to talk about. Yeah, rather a lot of games to talk about. That was part of the problem, just kind of deciding where to start. Where to start again. So for this podcast, we thought we'd stick to two, but they're two nice, thick, meaty games. One is an old favorite, and one is new since the last time we talked. So I guess we'll start off with the old favorite, Caverna. Caverna is a worker placement game in which each player plays a family of dwarves. You start out with two, and during the course of the game, they can have babies, so you can have more dwarves. Each player has their own player board, on which there is a cave and a forest outside the cave, and then there is a big worker placement board with actions. And you can go out onto the board and clear land, hollow out caves, and then once you've got cleared land and hollowed out caves, you can build living quarters, mines, animal quarters, and fence off areas, build barns outside for livestock and collect livestock and generally build up your little settlement. And the final scoring is based on basically how cool your little settlement is. One of the things I really like about the game is that it's so much fun even if you're losing because the fun is in building up your little settlement and being all domestic and being like, oh, I'm going to have a dwarf baby, and oh, I'm going to build this little house, and I'm going to, oh, I get a sheep. Oh, my sheep have babies. And so exactly who wins at the end is not always obvious from the way that the game's been played, and not always super relevant, because the point was that you built a little dwarf empire. Yeah, and the game weighs a ton because it comes with a horde of little wooden sheep and wooden donkeys and wooden dogs and wooden wild boar and wooden cows. Am I forgetting anything? And wooden crops, pumpkins, and wheat. And dwarves. Well, and yeah. The, the dwarves it, themselves and their barns. Those are all wood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's lots and lots of little bits, which is another thing I'm known to really like in a game. There are also the standard plastic gems you find in all sorts of games to represent ore and rubies, which are kind of the universal currency of the game. Rubies are extremely valuable because you can turn them into a wide variety of other resources or use use them to push some of your dwarves forward in the queue. It goes up to how many players? Is it six or seven? It doesn't we've, matter. We've It'd never played it with that many, and it would be insane. Crazy. I think we've gone up to... Have we done five? I can't we've remember. We've done at least four. Yeah. And it's it's fun, but it does get longer 
as the as you get the number of players up and up. There's a sort of a set of central player boards and you use different ones and the other side of this one or that one based on the number of players so that you have a balanced number of places for your workers to go. There's a neat mechanic of weaponry. See, your, your dwarves are depicted by just discs, which is a little disappointing in some ways because you have all the little sheep and little cows, you don't have little dwarves. But the reason for this, besides them just being easy to drop off and pick up on the board, is that you can arm your dwarves. You get some ore and you go to the blacksmith spot and you can forge a weapon, which takes the form of a little cardboard disc that sits on top of the dwarf that you took to the blacksmith. And once you've armed a dwarf, that dwarf can go on expeditions, which are available on various spots around the board. And depending on the level of their weapon, which is initially determined by how much ore they had at the blacksmith, but is then upgraded one for every expedition they go on, they can bring back different things, some of which are difficult or almost impossible to get any other way. So you're trying to accomplish all your things, get your farm animals and hollow out your space and all of that, and you're balancing that with, well, if I don't go in for the whole ore and blacksmithing thing, I can get a little bit of a head start on all of that. But if I do go in for the ore and blacksmithing and then going on expeditions, I can be really efficient in some ways. The instructions say that if everybody except one person goes for weaponry, the one who doesn't will win. And if only one person goes for weaponry, the one who does will win. I don't know if that's necessarily been borne out in our playing, but usually most people do at some point in the game. Yeah, the one d distinction that matters with equipping your dwarves with weapons is that that slows them down during the worker placement phase. Any dwarves that don't have weapons need to be placed before any dwarves with weapons. And of course, once people start acquiring weapons for their dwarves, they're going to be rushing to fill the spots that allow questing, where you send your dwarf out, you get a certain number of options, depending on the space you landed on, chosen from a menu that is limited by the level of the weapon that that dwarf is carrying. And one of the nice things about rubies is that you can spend them to place an armed dwarf when you would normally have to place an unarmed dwarf first. It's by Uwe Rosenberg, who's well-known for Lahav and Agricola. I have never actually played Agricola, but I'm told that Caverna is a pretty close spiritual successor in a lot of ways. It definitely has the Lahav pile of resources mechanism, where many of the landing spaces will accrue resources that pile up until somebody takes them. That can lead to massive piles of resources on spaces that aren't taken very regularly, which makes them more interesting and makes it easier for you to have another excellent choice if somebody goes where you wanted to go. But from a housekeeping perspective, it can get a little annoying, especially since in Lahav, the resources are little square chits of cardboard which stack very nicely. Whereas in Caverna, it's great. I mean, everything's wood, 
I, we forgot to mention that there's wood stone and wood wood. Uh, but oh, and dogs. We missed dogs, too. No, I, I you mentioned said dogs? the dogs. Okay. I mentioned the I dogs. I you missed the dogs. No. They're very cute. No. What do you take me for? <laughs> I am not a dog forgetter. <laughs> anyway, so when it gets to the point that there are, you know, ten pieces of wood sitting on this particular clear-cutting space... Because everybody's done most of their clear cutting later in the game, so the yeah. clear cutting spaces just get more and more, more and more wood. Yeah, it just—it's a lot of bits to move around, especially if you have them all in individual different dishes instead of piling them up on the board as you would in Lahav, because they take up more space. We recently upgraded to a broken token insert for Caverna that has a single layer devoted to organizing all of those different wooden pieces, which really helps make setup less maddening. Setup and teardown. Because the yeah. thing is, when you're first starting out, if you don't have a system that's built in, you have tons and tons of little baggies, and you have to open up all the little baggies. And to start out the game, you know, you got to put one piece of wood here and one piece of stone there, it can take 20 minutes to get everything set up and get everything out of its baggie and get things to a point where you don't have to go back into the box and dig around in baggies to get the next thing that you need. But this insert is really helpful that way. You just take out all the layers, lay out the boards, and you're ready to play. Another thing that should be said about this game is, like a lot of worker placement games, there isn't much in the way of player interaction apart from taking the spaces that other people are planning on taking either on that turn or taking all of those resources that have piled up before they get a chance to do so. Beyond that, you're not visiting each other's settlements or anything like that. So hard to be mean besides just, you know, getting all the rubies. Yeah, and usually if you get blocked, it's, it has nothing at all to do with anybody being mean. It has everything to do with them pulling the trigger on their strategy right before you tried to do the same thing for whatever you were trying to do. So for a lot of people, that's a plus, that it's not confrontational at all, but it's worth mentioning. Well, is there anything else you want to say about Caverna, or should we move on to our next game? For all the complaining that you do on this podcast that I beat you all the time, mm. for the record, I should state that I have lost the last three or four games of Caverna we've played, and you have won almost all of those games. I won the last two. The rest of them were, were far not long enough ago that I, I couldn't say who won. But when a game and my brain work well together, it makes my brain happy. I tend to win it more often, and I also tend to like it. I don't blame you for liking the games that you win all the time. <laughs> Certainly not. I wasn't assigning blame. I was just no. stating for the record that I do not win all the time. This is very true. Why do you think I suggest Caverna so much? The other game that we wanted to talk about today is Terraforming Mars, which is put out by Stronghold Games. Right now, it's exceedingly difficult to find, but I assume that they're printing a very large second run. The buzz around this game since its early release at Gen Con has been pretty intense. 
and I think it's pretty well deserved. It is a competitive game where each player plays a different corporation, and all the corporations are working together to terraform Mars, but ultimately they're being judged on how much they contributed to the project as measured in various forms of victory points. It's an odd game in that there are three different indicators of how terraformed Mars is, and that the game ends when all of those are taken to their gold point, but those are being used to track the duration of the game rather than a shared goal. I don't know if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, I mean, in a way it is a shared goal, but only in the sense that it, that's the end of the game. You're trying to terraform Mars, which means you need to get the temperature up a certain level. You have to get the oxygen percentage in the atmosphere up to a certain level, and you have to set out a certain number of ocean tiles. And once those are all maxed out, ocean tiles are all placed, the game ends. And you get victory points for being able to contribute to this to raise the temperature, to raise the oxygen level. But there are also other ways, like placing cities and placing greenery tiles next to cities. And there are cards that will give you points at the end of the game just for having placed them. So everyone has to sort of come up with a strategy that will get them the most points at the end, which often can involve doing more of the reaching those metrics faster, but also maybe not racing too fast because that would rob you of the chance to play some of your cards that would give you points, that sort of thing. So each player has a deck of cards. As Matthew said, you start with a corporation and you start with 10 cards. If it's your first game, they have these beginner corporations that basically say, you get to keep all those cards. All the other corporations, you start with a certain amount of money and you have to buy cards from your initial draw of 10, because obviously when you're a beginner, you don't have a very good sense of what cards are going to be valuable. And the game has a very large deck of cards, all of which are unique. You can play with two-thirds of the deck for a quote-unquote short game or add the remaining third in and reduce the starting production that everybody gets for a long game. I personally prefer the long game just because there's more engine building involved and there's more time for your strategy to really grow and blossom, but it can be rather long. And because this game tracks from beginning to end along a series of tracks that don't get any shorter if you're playing with fewer players, or longer if you're playing with more players, the time reduction between a two-player game and a four-player game isn't as big as you would expect with some other games. You'll play more rounds, but you're still trying to achieve the same things, so chances are it'll take you roughly the same amount of time, although of course you've got fewer people hemming and hawing on their turns. So as Diana said, when you draw cards from the deck, most of the time you have to then choose whether or not you're going to purchase those cards and add them to your hand to be played later on in the game. 
and because the deck is completely shuffled, there's a good chance that you'll draw cards early on in the game that are too expensive for you at this point, but could be extremely valuable later on. And there's no hand limit, but holding them in your hand for that duration of time means that you have to pay now with your more limited resources to hold on to that card. So a lot of the strategy of the game involves trying to project forward what you're going to be doing on later turns and deciding whether or not you're going to allocate some of your resources to set that up, even in the very beginning of the game. So in addition to your cards in your hand and your corporation card that says which corporation you're playing, how much money you start with, that sort of thing, you also have a player board, which tracks six resources, I think, money, titanium, steel plants, energy, and heat. And you have to move little cubes along line of numbers to track how many of each thing you are getting every round. That's your production. And then there are different little cubes that sit in the collection space that tell you how many of those things you have accumulated. This means that a jostle of the table or a sweep of the sleeve can be catastrophic. <laughs> oh my gosh, how much of anything did I have? What was my production? It can be kind of scary. You have to be really careful about your player board. Unless, of course, you get one of many aftermarket accessories that can help you corral that, because they did obviously see a need there. Your money is obviously used to buy cards. Most cards also cost money to play. Steel and titanium can help you reduce the cost of cards, certain cards that have the appropriate symbols on them. Plants let you place greenery tiles. You can also use money, but it's much more efficient generally to use plants. Energy is generated by playing cards that say increase your energy production, but energy doesn't accumulate from round to round. Any energy that's left at the end of a round is transformed into heat and then heat can be used to raise the temperature. Placing a greenery tile also raises the oxygen percentage, but you can keep placing greenery tiles for their points, even if you've already reached maximum oxygen. Yeah, because the center board not only contains the tracks for oxygen and heat and a spot for counting the number of oceans that have yet to be placed, but there's a map of Mars that has been separated into various hexes, and there's a tile placement subgame here, a bit like an extremely simple suburbia, for example, where you place cities that aren't worth anything at the end of the game on their own, but you're also placing greenery tiles, and when you place those next to the cities, the greenery tiles themselves are worth a point, and then they give each city they're adjacent to an additional point. As Diana said, all of the resources in this game are tracked using the same set of electroplated cubes. There are big gold ones for 10 units, medium silver ones for 5 units, and tiny browns ones for single units. And these are light plastic cubes with a coating of shiny Slippery. Slippery metal being placed on a 
somewhat glossy piece of cardstock, and where they are on the card denotes what they actually stand for. So I've actually tested, and you can blow these cubes across the card. You don't even have to actually knock them. A bit of a gust <laughs> can really screw things up. It's a bizarre design decision. The cubes themselves are really neat. I like them. The art on the card isn't stupendous, but it's clear. You know what's in each one, and once you know the iconography, it even tells you what you do with them. But this game becomes significantly more enjoyable if you get some sort of overlay or tray. Uh, there are a bunch of options that have been put out already for this game. Such an awesome game with one little design flaw. Yeah. Another thing that sets Terraforming Mars apart are the endgame scoring conditions. As I said, at the end of the game, you get points for greenery tiles and cities adjacent to greenery tiles. You're also playing cards over the course of the game to raise those meters, the oxygen and the ocean and the temperature meters, and each time you do that, you move on a central scoring track that is called the, the terraforming rating. Not only is this a significant part of your endgame score, but it's also considered as part of your round-by-round your round credits income. So each time you go up on that track by one, you're also getting one additional mega credit in subsequent turns. One of our friends insists we call them space bucks. Yes. It works just as well as anything else. Certainly rolls off the tongue easier than mega credit. There are also two other sections on the board that are tied up with scoring. The first is milestones, which are different conditions that you can satisfy over the course of the game and then spend money to claim. Each milestone you claim will be worth five points at the end of the game. So if you're the first person to build three cities on the board, you can spend eight space bucks on your turn as one of your actions to claim the mayor milestone. There are, I think, five different milestones that are available over the course of any game. There might be more, actually. It might be more like six. But only three of them can be claimed in any given game. So there's a bit of a race. But once you've claimed one, it's locked in and you'll get those points at the end of the game. The other type of player activated in-game scoring is the section of the board that refers to awards. Awards are... They're an amount of something at the end of the game. The goals for yeah. the end of the game. You see this sort of thing in suburbia, in castles of Mad King Ludwig. You see it in a lot of games where the game will select, and it may be public or private knowledge, that the person with the most X will get a certain number of points, and the person with the second most will get a certain number of points. What makes Terraforming Mars interesting is that these are public knowledge and they're selected by the players who need to spend an action and an increasing amount of credits to fund the award. So again, I think there are six or seven options for endgame scoring awards. Over the course of the game, at some point, people need to spend an action and a certain amount of credits to activate the award which of course sends up a giant flare saying at the end of the game 
the person with the highest income, for example, or the most stored heat, will get extra points. Now, everybody knows that. So, of course, you would only fund that award if you think you're going to be the person to take it. But you've just set off a race to have the most at the end of the game. Like Milestones, only three awards can be claimed over the course of the game. However, while Milestones all cost the same amount of credits, awards get progressively more expensive the more of them that are funded. So there's pressure to fund earlier rather than later in the game, which of course gives your competitors more time to catch up to you and pass you in whatever form of judgment you've selected. So yeah, there's a lot of fun interlocking mechanisms. You've got the race to all the metrics of terraforming, you've got the awards and milestones, you've got your cards. We haven't even talked about there are three different kinds of cards. There are ones with sort of a red-orange background that are one-time events. You play them and then flip them over in your area. And there are things like crashing a comet into Mars. Then there are green cards, which are played once and left face up. There are things like build a nature sanctuary. It might give you a chance to build a city with different criteria than the standard. Raise the temperature and also do something else. Give yourself energy increase your income or your plant production plant production your production of something like matthew said there's an enormous deck of cards and they're all unique the green cards are placed face up and they don't have any further effect blue cards are placed and then they let you do something they give you an extra action or a sort of a reaction whenever this happens you can do this or you can spend an action to do this some of them will let you place cubes on the card representing plants or animals or microbes. And then either there's victory points for the number of those on the card, or maybe you can spend an action to remove them from the card that then lets you do something else. So you end up with sort of this enormous pile of cards in front of you at the end of the game. You've got your face down stack of orange cards. You've got your green cards splayed out with only the tags at the top visible because those are sometimes important. You can only play this card if you've got this many of these tags showing that sort of thing. And some of them affect milestones as well. And then you've got your blue cards that you have to have most of the face of showing so that you can remember what you can do with them. And then of course you have your player board and you've got to set down your deck somewhere and there's your card for your corporation and then there's the big map of mars in the middle it can be a little bit of a table eater yep <laughs> fortunately has not eaten our table yet nom 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 <laughs> so i would highly recommend terraforming mars when you can get your hands on it which they'd be crazy not to print more of these i'm sure stephen bonacore at stronghold has got the largest print run he can fund going right now to make money with this so just be patient they'll be back in print soon in the meantime you can buy caverna it's been out for a long time and there shouldn't be any shortage well i was also going to say in the meantime you can decide which one of the overlays for the resource sheets you like best so that you can play terraforming mars without the irritation of playing it the way it sold well, 
it's getting late and our puppies need to go out and we need to go to bed. So uh, it's been great talking with you. We're so sorry it's been so long. We'll try and talk again before it's been too long again. If you have any questions, concerns, feedback, anything at all, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at diceanddachshunds at gmail.com. We're also on iTunes and at Board Game Geek, and we'd love it if you could leave us a review, share us with your friends, that sort of thing. We have really cute dogs. Don't you want to share the cute dogs? Mikey's waving good night.